welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer, and this week I will be speaking with Liz Ross, who is the founder and executive director of Rethink Your Food, a nonprofit organization that focuses on diet change initiatives, primarily among Caribbean people in the Caribbean region and the diaspora. Marianne is currently recovering from a knee replacement surgery, and she is doing well, but she is tired as hell and on a lot of medicine as as one is after such a surgery. So I insisted on doing Tots alone today. Tots is called Top of the Show. So hopefully, hopefully you enjoy this. We'll see how it goes. Last Friday, we had our Flock Friday monthly Zoom meeting, and it was just such a wonderful experience. Our guest was Amy Lubert, who is the founder of Veg Des Moines and was a recent podcast guest, and is also a Flock member. And I just always enjoy when a Flock member is a guest because they're really part of our community. And we had a couple new Flock members on the call. Honestly, I was so impressed by everyone's thoughtfulness and helpfulness with one another. If someone needs a, a resource in animal rights or animal protection or veganism or or something else, they always have someone who has their back. And that was evident from the Flock Friday meeting the other day. So if you're not yet a member of the Flock, please consider joining, especially now, because between now and the end of the year, all of your donations are tripled. Our Hen House is a nonprofit, as you know. So just go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and you can become a Flock member. And thank you so much. And thanks to our Flock members for joining us. If you need to renew your membership, then this is a great time to do it because of the triple match. So thank you so much in advance. So a few things that I've been reading about lately that I thought were interesting. One thing is that I, I saw this coverage that Happy Cow came out with a new report. You know Happy Cow. It's the crowdsourcing app that tells you what vegan or vegan-friendly restaurants are nearby you. And we've, we old vegans have been using it forever. But anyway, so they came out with a new report talking about the top 10 vegan-friendly cities. And I just was kind of curious because I feel like since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been a little like out of the loop with this. The most vegan-friendly city to me is the one I live in <laughs> because... I just know how to navigate the vegan stuff in the city. By the way, in Rochester, we have a, a brand new fully vegan pizzeria called Squatchos, which is the second fully vegan pizzeria in Rochester. The first one is New Ethic, and they're both fantastic. And there are a ton of vegan, a ton of pizza places that have vegan menus, like Peels and create a pizza. And then Blaze, which is a national chain. I think we had that in West Hollywood too. I love getting the food from there. Anyway, I digress. So starting at the end, I'm not going to read all of them, but the 10th spot went to Barcelona, which, and I thought this was notable, had seen a 74% growth in veganism. Wow, right? And then the number nine spot, this didn't really surprise me, was Warsaw, the Polish capital. And this totally is in alignment with my conversation with Veronica Kalinska, who is our graphic designer at our hen house and is from Poland, but lives in Amsterdam. And I interviewed her and that's going to air pretty soon. And we talked a little bit about the vegan scene in, in Warsaw. So, I mean, places that I want to visit, I got to like expand my list here. All right. So number three was New York City, which 
you know, I lived in New York City for many, many years and I was like, this is the number one vegan city. And I remember a, a long time ago being tasked with writing a sort of New York City versus LA vegan article for Veg News. And it was like a contest and it won. New York City won over LA at the time. And it's because I lived there and I knew how to navigate around it. But I have to say when I was there most recently, like everything changed, you know, I mean, as it does, but I mean, it changed really fast. So I didn't really know how to navigate my way around. I'm happy that it's, it's still super vegan friendly though. And I know it has a great high-end vegan scene. You know, I've never been to 11 Madison because (laughs) it's far outside the range of what I am willing to spend on a meal, but it is like a super, super fancy, chic, high-end experience. And I have to say, I do miss Candle 79 a whole lot. That was like our hangout, right? And if you if you went to New York City at, at any time in like the past 20 years, you went there. All right, so number two was Berlin, which I am not surprised by. And number one was London, where I, I was uh, just before the pandemic. That was the last time I was in London. And I did find that it had an incredible vegan selection like everywhere, I remember getting off the the tube there and there was like a, a cupcake stand that had vegan cupcakes, like in the subway. I mean, that's not what you find in the subway in New York City, I'll just say. And so anyway, London was the first city to ever surpass 200 fully vegan restaurants. And in 2022, the report says that it, London now has more than 400 vegan businesses. Amazing, right? Wow. I know that we have a lot of listeners in London, and I just want to say I'm coming to visit. All right. So switching gears here, uh, a new report found that zero deforestation pledges have done very little to reduce tree clearance in the Brazilian Amazon where soybeans are grown to feed cows and pigs and other animals, as we know, in animal agriculture. And, you know, this isn't a huge surprise. I I think sometimes we report on like, duh, stories, and this is like a duh story. But nonetheless, I felt like it was report worthy because of how many people say, but what about soy? You're killing the rainforest. Well, the majority of soybeans, that's more than 77% are grown for feed for animals. Those animals are, of course, raised for meat and exploited for dairy and eggs. And when it comes to deforestation, animal agriculture is the biggest driver. So, like, you know, these pledges are kind of bullshit. If soybean traders actually implemented their global commitments to these pledges, these zero deforestation pledges, then the current levels of forest clearance in Brazil could be reduced by 40%, but they're not sticking with what they are promising. So like, you know, bummer, womp, womp. By the way, these last two stories that I reported on, the happy cow one and the one about the meat industry is still destroying the Amazon. They're both from Veg News, as reported by my friend, Anastar Stanoskia, who is an incredible reporter and probably knows more news than like anyone in the world as, as it relates to veganism and animal rights. And also, like if I could only access her brain, like the Google of her brain, it, I would be, we would all be better for it. Animals would be better for it. So we'll work on that. Switching gears to the New York Times, they reported on the vegan butchers. And this is cool because I just like went to the New York Times and I, I typed in vegan because I was curious if anything new came up. And then I was like, wow, 
<laughs> There's this story about vegan butchers. So we are in Thanksgiving season now and, you know, eating turkeys has become more expensive and it's just as assholey as it's ever been. And so in light of that, vegan butchers are on the rise. So in the New York Times, there's an illustrated article featuring herbivorous butchers Kale and Aubrey Walsh, who were featured on our henhouse back on episode 355. And so they're cool, like super cool. First of all, dude's name is Kale. You know what I'm saying? Like, whoa, cool. This sister and brother duo went vegan back when they were teenagers and they were growing up in Guam. So they decided that like, since they were no longer eating animals, they would start veganizing it. And it kind of started as a joke. They're like, I know, let's open a vegan butcher shop. And now like they they have one, it worked. And now they have 25 employees. <laughs> so cool, right? The store is based out of Minneapolis, which is a really amazing city. If you're looking to like put together, you know, maybe even if you're in the US and you want to put together some trips that don't involve flying. You can take your electric car. <laughs> I'm just assuming you have an electric. I actually don't have an electric car yet. I want to get one, but I don't have one yet. But anyway, Minneapolis is a, is a really cool city to visit however you can. Oh, and while I'm on the subject of butcher shops here in Rochester, we have one grass fed, a fully vegan butcher shop run by Nora Rubel and Rob Knipe who were featured on episode 636. They, they're they like an amazing power couple. And just like the herbivorous butcher in Minneapolis, they use actual scales that butcher shops use. And so they're like slicing the, you know, vegan meat and they're putting them on this. It's like, it's like an experience. It's sort of iconic. I love bringing people there just because in addition to eating the vegan meat, seeing it and being part of it, it's like the future. So speaking of the future, let's get to our incredible guest today. Liz Ross is a recipe developer and the founder and executive director of Rethink Your Food, a nonprofit organization that focuses on diet change initiatives, primarily among Caribbean people in the Caribbean region and the diaspora, via public events, campaigns, and menu consulting services. Liz was born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago, where her family owns 300 acres of agricultural land within a rainforest in Tobago, where they grow cacao, fruits, and other crops. She will be joining me right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our henhouse, Liz. Hi, how are you doing, Jasmine? I'm doing really well. Thank you for being here. I know you're extremely busy and I have so many questions for you. So just to get started from like a thousand feet high, can you give us a brief idea of what Rethink Your Food is and then we can get into some details? So Rethink Your Food is a fairly new organization and our aim is to promote a plant-based diet to Caribbean people in the Caribbean region and in the diaspora. 
we have found that there is a lack of programs and initiatives that promote a plant-based diet. There's also a lack of initiatives that work with people who are committed to investing in healthier communities as, for example, people, leaders in the food service industry and leaders in the health and wellness industry. And thirdly, I don't know of any website or hub in which you can have a centralized location for information where people can use as a resource to get information that supports a plant-based food system. So this is all where Rethink Your Food comes in. Now, added to that, why the Caribbean? Well, first of all, I, I was born and raised in the Caribbean. And when we look at the population size, we can see that the United Nations says that there's about 44 million people living in the Caribbean. And if we look at the United States, it's about 4 million Caribbean immigrants. If we add their offspring, people who were born in the United States who are of Caribbean heritage and connected to their Caribbean heritage, we can probably safely say that that's doubled. Now, if we use that same idea to look at or the same pattern in um, Canada, in the UK, in Spain, and in France, the number turns out to be about 50 to 55 million people. So that's like <laughs> a seriously huge uh, population where there is not a lot of outreach going on. If we look at California, we can see that I think the size is about 40 million people. If you look at the African-American community or Black slash African-American in which includes Afro-Caribbeans, that's about 46 million people in the United States. So that gives you an idea of how big this is. Now, when it comes to health, you can also see, just like other parts of the world, that Caribbean people have to deal with issues around health that is food-related, just like any other part of, of the world and the United States. We have our share of heart disease and diabetes that's basically one of the top five causes of death and health problems. If we look at the fishing industry, we can see that the eastern part of the U.S., which is actually called the Western Central Atlantic region, which starts from the coast of Virginia all the way down to Florida and then going east into the Caribbean region, that is one of the most heavily fished areas by the industrial fishing industry. And as your audience knows, that has caused a lot of destruction to the flora and fauna, a lot of depletion of certain uh, fish species. So that also is impacting the lives of people in the Caribbean as well. Most Caribbean countries usually import about 70% of our food. And some of that meat, dairy, and eggs is actually comes from CAFOs, factory farms in the U.S., and even as far as New Zealand. 
So that gives you an idea of how we ourselves are involved and affected by this global food system that we have. And lastly, when you look at climate, as we saw with Hurricane Ian, which again affected Puerto Rico and other parts of the Caribbean, I mean, Puerto Rico is still trying to recover from their last major hurricane. You see an increase in hurricanes and storms, not only in the number, but in the severity. So you're seeing more flooding, more damage to the infrastructure, i.e. damage to the economy, damage to food crops, and not to mention all the stress that people have to endure as they're living through this. Some countries are in the what's called the hurricane belt, so they usually have to deal with the effects of that. And that's usually Haiti, Dominican Republic. Puerto Rico, Cayman Islands, Bahamas. So this is like literally the right time to start talking and including a conversation about transitioning to more of a plant-based food system. And like nobody is doing this. Right. <laughs> like well, literally. it sounds like you're doing it and you're right. It is the right time and the right moment. And it certainly has the right audience on the other end of it, just sort of waiting for these advocacy efforts of yours. And essentially, you're asking people to rethink their food, which is also the name of your organization. So what approaches have you found to be effective in reaching out? So we're a fairly new organization, and we just launched a program. It's not a year yet, and it's called the Vegan Caribbean Kickstart in which one can access on one of our two websites, vegancaribbeankickstart.com. So first of all, I'll tell you, it's been very successful. It's not even a year yet, and we've had about 13,000 people that have signed up. So we'll definitely get to 15,000 by within 12 months, which was my goal. So we'll definitely get to over that. And 85% of the people who participate are from, do identify as people of Caribbean heritage, of which 73% live in the Caribbean. And of the total Caribbean population of people who sign up, 77% live in the Caribbean. We've had over 21 countries participate And most of that, I think what we have about 19 Caribbean countries that have participated. And the reason for the kickstart is it is an efficient way to reach large groups of people who live on an island (laughs) separated from by the ocean. So obviously, the Internet is one of the best ways and most cost effective ways to introduce people to the benefits of a plant based diet. It includes a sample menu plan with recipes that are culturally appropriate to living in the Caribbean. And it also includes an email series. Now, the purpose, in addition to obviously trying introducing people to a plant-based diet, is also to encourage people to experience shopping, whether at the market or grocery store, or picking food from their garden with the to connect the experience of cooking to connect the experience of communing with others throughout that process to finding meaning in the larger context of celebrating our heritage foods 
while at the same time knowing that we are part of a process of transforming certain aspects of our food system. So because people need to find meaning in what they're doing and diets don't work. We know that. <laughs> so so we want to have it um, more inclusive and, and have the language tailored to just how people can find meaning. And we can talk about that later in the program itself. Now, the other purpose of the program is to put Rethink Your Food out there to say, hey, here we are. Some of our participants are actually, they actually work for the government. Some of our, and I know that because they email me, some of our participants also work, they're educators. So they work in the universities and schools. And the program is about bringing forth our visibility so that we could start building popular support for institutional change when we implement our other programs. Wow, there's a lot there. That's amazing. Just real quick, I noticed that you developed a lot of the recipes for the Kickstarter yourself. What are some of your favorites? Make me hungry. <laughs> okay, so heritage foods is a big thing. We are proud of our heritage and we are proud of the fact that Caribbean food makes up a number of different cultures for, you know, historically that have come together. Of course, not of, not all of it has been good because of colonization, but this is not about a decolonized diet. This is about really, really uh, celebrating our heritage and the foods that we have that comes from an influence of Africa, depending on where you are, India. Uh, basically, half of the population in Trinidad is from India through historically indentured laborers and then immigrants later. And also you have the European influence. You have English, Spanish, French, and Chinese, and to a much lesser degree, Lebanese and Syrian. And that it really makes up Caribbean culture. So one of my favorite foods is what they call breadfruit oil down. <laughs> so, and they call it oil down because it has a lot of coconut milk and sometimes it's sauteed with, with a lot of oil. And one of the things about my program is that it is a, you use either no oil or a small amount of oil when you're sauteing. So we have like a dry sauteing. And the breadfruit, which you get if you're in the United States, mostly in Caribbean markets or Asian markets, you cook with tomatoes, you cook with onion, garlic, thyme. You also use culantro. You can use that. Culantro is sort of like cilantro when it's smell and taste, but much stronger. And the leaf, the green leaf is looks kind of grassy and the shape of a, like a feather. So that is one of my favorite dishes. And what I do is usually it's cooked with salted pigtail. And of course, I'm not doing that. But when you cook that by, you know, in a little bit of coconut milk and you pair it with, let's say, one of our traditional dishes, which is red beans or red peas and dumpling, we stew sometimes with dumpling and some corn and callaloo, which is another traditional dish. Callaloo bush is actually from, it's part of a root vegetable called the, we call it dasheen, or here I think it's called edos. 
and we eat the bush itself. Um, well, we call it the bush, but it's the the leaves. And that makes a fantastic dish. Now, another one of my favorite is corn soup. And the way we make our corn soup in Trinidad is not like you make the corn soup here. We actually add a small bit of yellow split peas. We add pumpkin to it and we sort of puree it a little bit so it'll become thick. And then we add the other ingredients. And we also add chickpeas, which we call chana. And also ground provision like potatoes or eddos and so on. Um, you know, one thing I like about Center for Nutrition Studies, which is one of the, I actually the only nutrition-based program that I have seen, and I know they, they are one of our sponsors as well, is that when they talk about the food groups, they include, of course, grains, legumes, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds, but they also include a category called provision. And that is important in our diet because ground provision is a very big part of our diet, of tropical diets. And it is very nutritious and it is very filling. It sounds, it sounds, everything you just said sounds absolutely incredible. So kind of related, how do you counter the argument that letting go of ancestral foods is letting go of your culture? Like, yeah. yeah, I'm just curious about your take on that and and also what you would say is the true heritage diet for folks from the Caribbean. Right. So again, I think there's a difference between when you're talking about a US focused argument and food system and culture and how vegans or animal rights activists respond to that versus what's going on in the Caribbean and different cultures. And sometimes I think it's easy to assume that the lens through which people in the U.S. are living is the same outside. So, for example, when I was on the farm, on a farm in, in California, there were a lot of non-vegans that talked about a decolonized diet, and that actually included to them meat. It included buffalo instead of cows or elk. And what is actually good is that you have U.S.-focused activists who are countering that by talking about a decolonized diet that does not include that. My audience is very different from that because even though the history is connected in some ways around chattel slavery and the brutality that has occurred with that, what happened after is very different. So for example, in, in the Caribbean, it's 99% black and brown people. <laughs> so we don't have a dominant culture of that doesn't look like us that is controlling different aspects of our systems. Our police force is black and brown. Our judicial system, lawyers, judges are black and brown. Our politicians are black and brown. Our teachers, our health industry, it's black and brown. So we are talking about heritage foods and we are talking about connecting to that. Now, of course, if I told somebody in the Caribbean something about going back to, let's say, our ancestors, many of them will say, well, you know, our ancestors ate meat. And that's obviously a valid point. In fact, when you look at some of the very small religious groups that are that still connect to their African a blend of African and Christianity like Santeria in Cuba. And then we have what's called the 
Baptist, which is not the same Baptist here. The Baptist in Trinidad is is a little bit of African Yoruba traditions with Christian traditions. They will engage in the slaughtering of animals, just like you would see Hasidic Jews here. Um, there's a ritual that begins with K, I think it's, but you know, anyway. And then, of course, Thanksgiving. <laughs> we can't forget that Thanksgiving in the United States is, is in its sense, a ritual that we celebrate around the killing of a turkey. So it's not just about our African ancestors or black and brown people. So what I do in my work is focus on the possibilities of what we can do. And my narrative is that we are actually the ancestors that can influence generations to come. So what is our responsibility in framing and molding our existing culture so that those that are coming ahead of us can look at us as the ancestors to say, this is the good that we have done with all the information that tells us that a move towards a plant-based food system is better for the planet, is better for our health, is better for the animals. It is consistent with connecting with the land, which resonates with Caribbean people so much. And if we're saying that we're connecting with the land, what does that mean? So it's not so much about debating whether we ate animals from our ancestors, whether they were pre-colonial or whether they were my grandparents. It's about how do we, and, and I really would like to see more activists engage in those kinds of conversations about we have the responsibility as the ancestors of the future generation to make the world a better place. And what does that look like consistent with our values? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so true. So well said. And you have to get a TED Talk, Liz. I, <laughs> I hope that's in your, I hope that's in your uh, agenda for next steps. So can you talk a bit about religious influences on diet in the Caribbean and how they can coordinate with your messaging? Yeah, that I, that's a good question. So you've seen the debates with recently, I think it was last year, I saw a recent debate and I think it happened in the UK and it was basically about debate with, um, what is it, welfareists versus abolitionists, right? And I listened to the entire thing and, and what I got from it was that context and makes a whole lot of difference. The people who you spend time with really makes a difference in framing your argument of whether you're a welfareist or an abolitionist. Um, the idea being that, and, and this is true, um, a lot of people stay vegan for a long time because they care about animals, because they empathize with animals. I mean, that's basically my frame and my moral frame and why I am vegan. However, that's not the full story. And for example, people come to being vegan for long term or not eating meat and eggs and dairy for spiritual reasons, for religious reasons. So for example, in Trinidad, Trinidad is about 50-50 
people of Indian descent and African descent. And of that Indian population, there's it, they're mostly Hindus. And not all of the Hindu, some of the Hindus do eat meat, but there is a population of very religious Hindus that have never eaten meat. And it's not so much because of animal rights per se, centering in that the way the narrative is in, let's say, the United States or the UK, it's because they still, at some sense, believe that animals aren't necessarily, for lack of a better word, equal to humans in that sense. It's more around reincarnation. And there is a hierarchy in the reincarnation process. But nevertheless, it is about nonviolence and recognizing that these an animals have feelings. And which, well, I think most people do to some degree. It's just that there is that indifference that we are trained to um, focus on. So that's one group. The other group is Seventh-day Adventists. There is a lot of Seventh-day Adventists in the Caribbean, and many of them transitioned from a vegetarian diet to now transitioning to a vegan diet. I think your audience is aware of the 60-year study um, of Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda, and that was actually used to help promote a vegan diet, actually. And many of them are transitioning now because of the information that we have to a plant-based diet, and many of them are actually on my program, and I know this because they email me. And Seventh-day Adventists believe that God has, I'm not Seventh-day Adventist, but their spirit and their soul is housed within their body. So taking care of their body is consistent with their spiritual experience and how they find meaning. And as you probably know religion is a very, very strong motivator to do a lot of things or abstain from <laughs> yes, certain things. Right. So that's one group. The other group is the Rastafarian community in the Caribbean. And many Rastafarians are actually pescatarian. They eat fish and plant-based. They don't eat eggs and they don't drink milk. So many of them are now transitioning to not eating fish. So it's not really like a big transition that they're going through. However, in addition to that, Rastafarians, some of them in the mountains of Trinidad and Jamaica and St. Lucia, have actually been vegan before that word came about. And they call it ITIL. So you hear a lot of Caribbean people using the word ITIL to replace the word plant-based, to, to replace the word vegan diet. And like Christians, Rastafarians ideas vary. You have people who are more strict and you have people who are um, just focusing on the diet itself and other things. But that is another group that is very, very dedicated to connecting to the land, to self-sufficiency, to communing with the, co the community and valuing the importance of community and how the land and her inhabitants are part of the community and connecting their identity back to the African continent, particularly Ethiopia, but also the awareness that Africa had contributions to civilization, science, to indigenous ways of growing food, to ways to the economy, to math, so that when you get to talking about 
chattel slavery, it's just a small part of their history and they are not defined by it, which is why I think one of the reasons that a decolonized diet is not really something that is promoted because you're already living among people who look like you. And, and if you're Rastafarian, your identity goes way beyond that. So these are three examples in which I would say spirituality and or religion can be a huge motivator in people's sustainability in terms of a plant-based diet. Yes, so true. I love the way you framed all of that together. And for listeners who are interested, we have interviewed people who represent that specific religion, all of the ones that Liz just mentioned. So a lot of organizations that are seeking diet change focus exclusively on health or perhaps also on food justice. And though those are perhaps the primary focus of your message, you bring in strong messages about the environment and about animals as well. So I'm curious, why do you think your audience is open to these arguments while other audiences seem not to be? Right. Well, you know, it's kind of like what they say. They throw the spaghetti and see what sticks. <laughs> I don't think necessarily just talking about health is going to be the best motivator for everybody. I mean, diets don't work. They don't. So I think it's important to bring I mean, even if you're talking about diet, it's the language and what you use. So, for example, you could talk about diet in terms of the reasons that I had mentioned around spirituality, diet around connecting to the land. In my kickstart, particularly, I talk about the three reasons. So I start off with diet and also give examples. You know, I deal with the issue of of uh, protein you know, show that there are athletes who also are plant-based. And also then I segue into the environment and how it affects the environment because a lot of Caribbean people are not aware of how it can affect our water supply, our ocean. I mean, these things are new to the Caribbean environment, hence why Rethink Your Food is there. And many of them are actually responding really well. They're like, oh, I've, I get emails that say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that because Caribbean people, we don't tend to think in terms of the consequences and actions of our diet. And then I have a section that talks about the suffering of animals, not so much showing the goriness of it. I have, let's say, there's a video that shows a cow in New York that escaped, jumped off of a truck and how it was interesting that so many people rallied around this cow to save this cow. And it showed this woman who really started to connect her what was on her plate with this cow. So those are the kind of, I actually have a section on empathy, like basic stuff. What is empathy? What does that mean in our community? And also the importance of why empathy also is about connecting with the animals. So it's about talking about these basic ideas of kindness and love um, and introducing people to things that they have not been exposed to that perhaps maybe if you were living in the United States, 
you, uh, depending on where you are in the United States, you may have been exposed to it. And in some cases, you're exposed to it in a political sense of being anti such and such off the bat. Because, of course, everything is political in the United States, even being (laughs) plant-based. Whereas in the Caribbean, we don't have that political tension going on. So when people hear that, when they hear how it can affect their lives, when they hear about what's going in, going on in factory farms, when they hear about, well, perhaps maybe we are killing animals because they have feelings and we're not realizing that they have feelings. These are just really new concepts that I'm trying to promote. And of course, you know, the spaghetti, some of it will stick. All of it might stick and that's great. <laughs> yeah, totally. Now I want spaghetti. It's like <laughs> I'm imagining it on the wall and I'm like, what a waste. Give it to me. <laughs> so tell us about the Better Menu Initiative. Oh, yes. Okay. So here is where Rethink Your Food comes in. This is what I call like a theory of change. And the idea is to get as much public support for institutional change. And to start getting public support is obviously to be out there and to introduce people to the benefits of a plant-based diet and engage them. So those two programs will be obviously the Vegan Caribbean Kickstart and also a video series podcast. And I plan to have my Caribbean Veg Summit. And the Veg Summit is not like a veg fest. It's more a conference, people coming together. If you're in the health and wellness profession, if you're in the food service sector, or if you are someone who is interested about the benefits of a plant-based diet, you're going to get that information from experts. That's the outreach part. And then that would segue into the other component, which is the database where I will have researchers when I get all the funding after people listen to this and they give me a (laughs) $300,000 budget. Definitely, definitely. (laughs) Where uh, researchers will have articles and data that really highlight the problems in the Caribbean and why including a plant-based, a plant-focused food system is important around climate change, around the economy, around health, and a number of things, farming, a number of things. So this will be sort of like a resource center that people can use to talk to politicians or talk to food service leaders or health practitioners. And then finally, the fourth component would be the Better Menus Initiative. And when I mean fourth, I don't mean it it, it can happen all at the same time. And the Better Menus Initiative will be a program in which we will partner with people in the food service sector and the health and wellness sector who are invested in and committed to healthier communities. So those people, including people who are environmentalists, are interested in shifting our diet to a more plant-focused diet and eating less meat. So one example would be if we were to work with a vocational institution, a school, we would work with them over time, a number of years, to switch out some of their 
animal products to plant-based products over time. And it depends, the process depends on the school, how people respond and how far they are willing to go. But you can't get that if you don't have public support. And hence why it is so important to have this Vegan Caribbean Kickstart. It's similar to Veganuary, but I can't stress the importance of the beginnings of having a program like this because I I think I mentioned to you, we've had about 13,000 people who have signed up. And of that, 85% are people of Caribbean heritage. And of that, at least 70% of them live in the Caribbean. 22 countries. This program is focusing, it's English speaking. And later I would like to actually have a Spanish speaking and uh, Haitian Creole component of the Kickstart. The other thing about the Better Menus Initiative is as I work on pilot projects, for example, I would like to start when I move back to Trinidad. I am a citizen of both the United States and Trinidad and Tobago. There are key countries in which I would like to work with people around the menu change program, because once those key countries start implementing programs and people see this uh, success, then you have that domino effect. And what that can lead to then is more institutional change from a government level. So for example, we have what is called CARICOM, CARICOM, which is like Caribbean Community Coalition something. And what that is, is a coalition of um, government leaders in the Caribbean region who come together to discuss policy change around our economic prosperity, around trade within the, among the, the countries, and also around health and climate change. So the better menus initiative also has that component of being used as a reference to put forth to having more institutional change and talking to a body in which everybody is there at the same time. You have a centralized location in which they can collaborate to make change. So that tells you how big that is and how powerful that is. You know, once we build that grassroots support, whatever that number is, whether it's 3% or 30%, we will find out. Yeah, definitely. And I was going to ask you this at the end, but it feels more relevant right now. How can people support your efforts and find out more about Rethink Your Food? Yes. So we have the Vegan Caribbean Kickstart website, which has been up for a year. Um, uh, Yeah, a year. And the main website is Rethink Your Food Inc. or RethinkYourFood.org. So people can go to that website. There's a contact us section so they can go there and send me information. There's also a donate button. And they can also see the Caribbean Kickstart program that will go into, in the program section, go into the website, but also the other two programs that we plan to launch, which is the Caribbean Veg Summit and also the Better Menus Initiative once we get funding for that. Now, with the Better Menus Initiative, I am not, project management is my thing, and I'm not into reinventing the wheel. So I have actually been talking to about five major vegan animal rights organizations who already have a menu change program. And I will be collaborating with at least one of them, but most likely two of them, because they've offered their services to collaborate with me during the pilot program. 
in that way, I'm not reinventing the wheel. And I'm working with people who actually have resources, like tons of resources already. So I'm really, really, really excited about that. And I like the fact that in this nonprofit world that we have, that we can collaborate with each other and work with each other. And these people have volunteered their support and their time. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah, totally fantastic. Well, switching gears, tell us about your experiences at UC Santa Cruz. Yes. So I was on a farm. Well, UC Santa Cruz Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems. It was a 10-month program at that time. Now it's, I think it's two or three months. And it was fantastic. I wanted to learn how to farm. My brother is a farmer, by the way. We actually have 300 acres of agricultural land in Tobago. So I come from a family of farmers and subsistence farmers. My grandfather was a, a, a subsistence farmer. And also, I also wanted to learn more and expand my existing knowledge on understanding the issues that farmers and farm workers face. And I mean, it was an amazing program. The nice part of it, of course, is so Santa Cruz is hilly and you see Santa Cruz is on a hill. So I can literally get out of my cabin. We have cabins and walk down to the edge of the hill and see the ocean a mile away. And I can pick the sweetest strawberries in the world. Just sit there and eat. <laughs> and that's really, really amazing. I mean, the food, the soil was so healthy. I should tell you that I lived in Santa Cruz for oh, you about did. two years. Yeah, when I was the senior editor of Veg News and Veg News was located there. And I, I, so I'm for extremely, I lived downtown, but I I have been to UC Santa Cruz and it is just one of the most beautiful places on earth. Oh my goodness. It's a 30 acre farm and it's like heaven. Like, it's so amazing. Did you get to see the cabins? Did you know, but I, I, I know what you're talking about, but I didn't get to go there, but I did take lots of hikes on the campus. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it was really nice. I can take this different ways, but I will say this coming back to the vegan animal rights world and our food system. What I have noticed with some people now, first of all, I'll say that because you are vegan, that doesn't mean we need to know everything about our food system. That's just not fair. And it's not, it's not something that we have to, I mean, other people ha are in other institutions and they don't have to know everything about everything in the world, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally, <laughs> but somehow totally. we have to come up with all the solutions and know everything. So, and I think that's part of the whole speciesist mindset of normalizing a specific way of thinking and anything comes new, your body and your brain just starts to think of all these things, these double standards. So I'd like to say that. However, for organizations and people who are actually talking about a food system, and when they're talking about things like Going plant-based is about, for example, pro-justice. And they talk about how if our food system was all plant-based, that we will end world hunger is literally showing a lack of understanding of what's going on in our food system. 
And I think when you're talking about that, it's important that we have to educate ourselves because what happens is that we end up disconnecting ourselves from the food justice world that understands that we already have an abundance of food to feed the entire world. Now, given that some of that is is animal products, but the fact is that we have a supply of food products that can feed the world, but we also have hunger issues. We have issues with hunger and lack of access to healthy foods. We have an economic system in which the United States dumps their surplus food into places like Africa and India and other places, putting the price down where farmers who have cash crops like wheat and corn can't afford to get a fair price. And so they become poor. Most of the small farmers in the world are actually on the poverty line, particularly in the global South. Now, the other idea is is about cheap food. Now, on the one hand, you have people can't afford the food because of lack of access on the one hand, but also because it's too expensive. But on the other hand, if you lower the price of food, then farmers aren't going to be paid a fair wage and their farm workers aren't going to be paid a fair wage. So the economic system that we have is problematic. And I think when we say things like, if all the food is going to be plant-based, now it'll end world hunger. I think it's really a lack. It, it shows that to many food justice people that we are siding and buying into the narrative of Monsanto, now beer, or um, Cargill, and all those companies that are actually promoting this sort of scarcity narrative that we see. And as a result of that scarcity narrative, where are they going? They're going into black and brown countries and now using their land, whether if it's for factory farms or whether if it's for wheat or whether if it's for the soy to feed, they're still promoting that. And now, if you're arguing that we're going to run out of food, which is debatable. But if you're arguing that we're going to run out of food, that's one thing. But if you're arguing that we need more food and if we have all plant-based food, that we can now feed everybody else, that's just simply, it's not even real. It doesn't even make sense when we know that even in other parts of our system, we have um, a hierarchy and we have haves and have-nots. I mean, the food system is just a replication of other parts of, you know, our healthcare system, you know, in which there are people who have access to better healthcare than others. Does that make sense? So it makes total sense. And I'm trying to wrap my head around this. I'm wondering if you can give any tips to animal rights activists who bring in issues of world hunger into their messaging so that they aren't kind of getting trapped in this very problematic messaging around around world hunger like how how should it be communicated especially for animal activists right so if you are not in a space in which the debate is around world hunger which is basically talking about in my opinion and in the opinion of pretty much the food justice world And when I mean the food justice world, I'm meaning the farmers, the small farmers who are experiencing the problems and the nonprofits who are working with these farmers. 
I think if you are not knowledgeable of that, then stay away from the issue. Talk about the the diet, talk about animal suffering, talk about factory farms, talk about those kinds of stuff. We don't need to try to cover everything <laughs> when we don't know. <laughs> to your to your point before about how we're supposed to know every every single yeah, thing out. Of, and and yeah. don't buy into that. Yeah, okay, it looks good on your website and it 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 looks good when people are looking, but it it also comes across as insincere. And unfortunately, the animal rights world and the food justice world are at odds. Hmm. And that that is unfortunate, isn't it? Because there seems to be a lot of common ground. Yeah, there is. There is. And that's, you know, we can talk about that in a minute. But going back to your question about what we can do, I would say stick to what you know. And if you are in the world that is dealing with food justice issues, which many, there are vegan nonprofits who are doing that, then educate yourself in the category, whether if it's farm workers or whether if it's the supply of the food chain or whether if it's restaurant workers or whatever it is, just become knowledge and and listen to the people who are being affected by it. Don't just put up a website. Anyone can get data on the internet to support anything. So don't just, oh, okay, I need to show that it's this. So let me just go find something. And oh, okay, yeah. So I think sincerity is really, really important. And I really think that the more sincere we are, we don't look like we have just one agenda and we're just interjecting all kinds of other things because of that. So let's go back to the common ground issue. Just to reiterate, we mentioned that there is certainly common ground, a lot of it, I think, for, between food justice activists and animal activists. And you mentioned, and I've experienced, that there is a divide there. So what is that about and how do we bridge the divide or do we bridge the divide? Yeah, that's an interesting question. and. Um... We have to understand that people in the food justice world, some people, not everybody, because some people in the food justice world are vegans. But the ones who are not vegan, we have to understand that they buy into the same speciesist mentality that the rest of the population who are non-vegans do. So the outreach, in my opinion, isn't that much different around why we should move towards a more plant-focused food system. And depending on who it is, the conversation may change. Now, having said that, I think many people in the food justice world, it's safe, just like people in the animal rights world who are actively, they have nonprofits or they're doing outreach, then that's a different standard in which people are informed and they're taking action to do something. So perhaps we can talk more about issues around what kind of food system are we looking at and not contradicting ourselves by having those very fundamental systems, like, for example, domination, of which we talk about dominated by a small handful of uh, multinational corporations, dominated by our economic system, dominated by a political system which is in bed with multinational corporations, the idea of, of, of racial dominance and all these kinds of dominance that 
we food justice activists are working towards that let's not have that spill over into how we are working towards a plant a food system that includes equity and for us to do that we have to have a conversation of how we dominate animals we have to have a conversation about speciesism i would like to see more of a conversation in which we can talk about that and really address the double standard that we see when people feel that when we are talking about building a plant-based food system, it doesn't mean that, number one, we have all the answers. And it doesn't mean that, therefore, if we're not there yet, so for example, one of the common things is that people who actually have access to going to the supermarkets and eating plant-based foods or going to Whole Foods will bring up, for example, Poor people, people who don't have access, as I would say, unfortunate, as a front to not deal with the issue of speciesism. So they bring that up, which I think is unfair. However, what I usually say is just like, for example, if we are working towards an equitable and fair system for farm workers, we are still going to a grocery store. Here it's Publix, in which if we picked up an apple, that apple actually might be from a farm worker who was abused. So because we are living in the system, that doesn't mean we cannot fix it. I mean, the fact that we're working towards the system means that we are living it, and in some degree, we are perpetuating it. But for some reason, if we're vegan, there's this narrative that we have to come correct. (laughs) So I think we have to really talk about those discussions and say, well, okay, you're saying it for this, but look, but you're doing the same thing. I mean, we're all working towards a fair food system. So let's really talk about the issue. Let's talk about the fact that, and it's okay, that you, you don't value the animals. You don't value the fact that this is one component in which you have a free pass, so to say so to say, when it comes to creating a system that's le- less, that's more equitable, in which there's less dominance. And let's have a conversation about that. You know, it's not about we got you, or it's not about you're wrong or right. Let's just have a conversation about what that means and what that looks like and how we can do the best in the situation that we're in as we're focusing on working towards a plant-based food system. So for example, in Trinidad, I'm not gonna be going to talking about fisher folk and telling them not to fish. First of all, it's dangerous. If I am going to people and telling them, or in some sense they see, they feel that I am a threat to their economy, that can be dangerous for my life. In, in the United States, we have the privilege of having to dialogue with not necessarily having to have our lives threatened physically in some cases, whereas some places that, you know, you have to watch what you're saying. But apart from that, and I'm not saying fisher folk are dangerous, I'm saying, what I'm saying is that, you know, it's it's not about, it's about how our system, how do we work towards the system? And that will take a while. And okay, fisher folk have their have their fish. I am not that's I'm not working to end their fishing. I am working to focus first 
on the bigger fish, <laughs> which is industrial fishing, uh, KFOs, um, a system. Could you imagine if we just focused on factory farms and crashed that system? How much of an effect that will have in people's minds? I mean, and, and pretty much when you look at any social movement, you don't necessarily always focus on your end result in the beginning. So, for example, Cesar Chavez, they actually focused on one wine industry, one wine company to squeeze that wine company out and boycott that company. And then when other wine companies saw it, they were like, okay, we need to have a discussion. We need to, you know, bring them to the table. When it comes to the LGBTQ community, it was first domestic partnership because, you know, we couldn't get gay marriage. So we have to understand how social movements work and we have to understand that our allies can also be people who eat animal products. Yeah. So, by the way, don't be too jealous, but I got to meet Dolores Huerta a couple weeks ago. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. At the National Women's Hall of Fame induction, she was introducing someone. I was very excited. And just going back to what you said about dialogue and conversation, it's interesting that you're bringing up the LGBTQ movement because I also am an activist in that space. And I, in fact, came to the animal rights movement by way of the AIDS awareness movement. And I just keep thinking about the dialogues and the conversations that I wish could be had now between LGBTQ activists and LGBTQ activists. <laughs> I know that every social justice movement has divisiveness. And I maybe it's because of my age, just as like a Gen X person and being able to sort of understand where both perspectives are coming from. And, and then there's that like threat of cancel culture and and cancel culture is huge. Yeah. And I really Oh, I mean, this is just a, a general statement, but I, I, we need to get better at communicating with each other within the worlds that we exist in or like nothing is going to change. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Black folks been dealing with trying to deal with racism for how long now? <laughs> right. Yeah. Over 150 years. But, you know, the way I see it is that part of working towards a better system is part of being human. It really is, has to part, of, it has to be, it's part of being human. And I really would encourage people to really get more involved, regardless of if it's, if it's LGBTQ, whether if it's um, Black liberation in the U.S., whether, or other parts of the world, whether if it's about our food system, whether if it's about climate change, but the reality is that there's always going to be tension. And what I find, so for example, I get people, usually white, who say, well, you know, I wish I can talk to indigenous people about switching to a plant-based diet and it's so frustrating. And because many of them use the narrative about connecting to their ancestral lands and connecting back to a decolonized food system that includes, as I said before, eating bison instead of cows or elk, you know, or boar and so on. And 
you know, there's an, the idea in the United States that if you are from specific cultures, you can't really debate or tell other people what to, to say. And I do think that it is true, given the context of which we live, that if you are white, or even me, a Black woman from the Caribbean, isn't going to go to my the uh, Mikasuki uh, tribe here, which is literally 20 minutes away from where I live, unless I am invited to say, hey, let me tell you about a plant-based diet. However, that doesn't mean that we cannot discuss and problematize the idea of using tradition, spirituality, or religion to perpetuate unnecessary violence. We can have that discussion because that connects us as human beings. We all have traditions and we can problematize that, but that doesn't mean I need to go in. And so sometimes there's this idea in which people feel that they need to talk to everybody. (laughs) You know, it's like, why can't I talk to these people? You know, well, you know, rain it down a little bit. Maybe your notion of feeling that you need to talk to people has to do with perhaps that mentality that you see Christians do when they go all over the world. I'm not ta- I'm not saying Christianity's bad. <laughs> to you know the missionaries, I'll get in trouble for this, of course. Or colonization. You know, it's this idea that now you have to go into every space. No, deal with your community. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I th- with when I was bringing up the LGBTQ issue and also kind of hearkening back to when I met Dolores a few weeks ago, it was at this like women's event, right? And I was with my masculine presenting wife and the only butch person in the room, really. And I think it's interesting. My wife and I were like, God, this is so straight. Like, this is such a straight... <laughs> room like it's the strangest room we've been in in so long and and then when i'm in lgbtq rooms which is much more often there is kind of an ageism presence about older feminists so i was sort of noted so you're you're the older one um i think i'm just like in the middle and and before me kind of were the second wave feminists and then after me was this sort of like um gender revolution and and these two sides don't see each other and i'm an al-anon so i'm constantly like trying to make everyone feel better <laughs> but um <laughs> anyway I, this is a total tangent but it, 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 what you're saying is fascinating and 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 it feels like a it feels like a really powerful place to end this part of the interview though i do hope you stay on with me for the bonus yeah and I just want to reiterate, I have my my mother is a, is a staunch Catholic, so I'm not trying to knock you know Christians. What I'm knocking is the idea of going into other people's spaces and having the arrogance of feeling that it is your mission to now feel that you need to change everybody who's in front of you. Um, there are people who I know, even in my space, the Caribbean space, in which I know I can't reach. Move on, go to somebody else. I think there's enough people who we can have a dialogue with, people who are curious, people who are interested. I see them signing up to my Kickstart all the time because I have, I collect data and and I have a poll in which, um, a questionnaire in which I ask, what are your interests? How much meat, dairy, and eggs do you eat? And then when you leave, you, they, you fill out 
a survey. And I have about maybe 2% people filling out the survey. So I am interested in collaborating with people who are interested, people who are curious, people who eat meat and dairy products, but also understand the value of transitioning. They're just not there yet. And maybe they may or may not go, but relax. <laughs> Let's just work with, not you particularly. No, actually, I should relax. It's good advice for me too. <laughs> so Liz, tell, tell us again how we can find you online and support your efforts. Yeah, so um, you can reach me, anyone can reach me at rethinkyourfood.org. Again, rethinkyourfood.org. They can donate. There's a donate button and then there's a contact us page. But I encourage you also, in addition to that, to go through the website and see what we do and also the wonderful programs that we really would like to have. If I had a $300,000 budget, I can hire more people and I can do amazing work because right now we at, at that moment, we are at that opening in where in which Caribbean people are listening because they are affected by climate change and they are, many of them are sick because of their diets. So we have that opening right now and they are the neighbors of the United States. So I think we don't want to have that missed opportunity. Mm -hmm. 1000%. Liz, thank you so much. I am, you mentioned that you're going to have a podcast and I'm going to be your first subscriber and I'm sure everyone listening to this right now is going to be number three, four, five, six, et cetera. But I am excited to stay up to speed on what you're working on. And I invite you to come back anytime you have something going on. And uh, I really appreciate you joining us today in our hen house. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Hello, everyone. It's Jasmine again. I'm sure that if you are a regular listener, you are used to hearing rising anxieties in this segment. But because Marianne is recovering from a knee replacement surgery, you're hearing from me instead. And we're just going to shake things up today and do something slightly different from Rising Anxieties because this is a personal Rising Anxieties that is coming up in my life a lot lately, which is for some odd reason, some inexplicable reason, more and more people are asking me about vegan beer and wine, and they're sort of using it as an excuse to not go vegan. And so I think that that is like, in a way, their own rising anxieties. So I thought I would just briefly chat about vegan beer and wine, especially because I happen to know that there are some new vegans here today. Uh, so I'm going to start by actually <laughs> reading a, a short chapter from my book called The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan, which has 30 short chapters, one chapter a day for a month. You could do it that way. And there is a chapter called It's Your Party, Drink Wine If You Want To. And it's day 23 in the book. 
If you heard wine and beer aren't vegan, you heard wrong. So pour yourself a glass of vegan pinot while you read this chapter. First, the ugly. It's true that some wine uses fining agents during production, namely through, wait for it, fish bladders, similar to the filtering of sugar through bone char. Fining is a clarification process used to remove unwanted particles in wine that could affect its overall color, taste, or aroma. This process results in a wine that is considered by some to be cleaner. In addition to the fish bladders, more specifically isinglass or gelatin from fish bladder membranes, ugh, I didn't write ugh, I wouldn't know how to spell it. <laughs> Some wineries also use egg whites, bone marrow, gelatin, casein, which is milk protein, blood, and chitin, which is spelled C-H-I-T-I-N, and it is fiber from crustacean shells for the fining process. So they use that for the fining process. Now the good news. Vegan alternatives to these animal-derived agents do exist, and they include carbon, bentonite clay, limestone, plant casein, silica gel, and vegetable plaques. Even better, many of your favorite alcohol libations are probably vegan. And there are really easy ways to find out. Barnivore.com, there's an app too, is about to be your new drinking buddy. It has an extensive searchable database where you can type in the name of the boozy beverage, be it wine, beer, or spirits that you're contemplating purchasing and find out whether it passes the vegan tests. Many do, including the red variety of surprisingly adequate three-buck chuck at Trader Joe's. So cheers to that. Another tip-off, the words unfined and unfiltered on the label mean that it is very likely vegan. You may be wondering about biodynamic wines. Although these wines are often pricier and fancier, and they employ more sustainable production systems, many of these types of wines involve animal exploitation, sadly. The winemaking process itself used at these vineyards is indeed vegan. A grape is a grape is a grape. But the growing practices frequently are not. Biodynamic wine follows a practice of agriculture that relies on both scientific and spiritual elements called anthroposophy. But since this type of wine is organic, the production not only relies on animal manure, but also sometimes pieces of dead animals. Ugh, which help to incubate the poop. This might include cow skulls, horns, and intestines. Blah. Can biodynamic wine be made vegan? The short answer is yes, but finding biodynamic vineyards is still uncommon. One example is a company that is both biodynamic and vegan, Kirsiabella, which rigorously avoids all animal products. This forward-thinking company uses green manure, which comes from composted plants instead of animal poop. Kirsiabella even grows its own herbs for the compounds it sprays and seeds for cover crop mixes. So you see, anything can be done without animal exploitation, even biodynamic wine that's vegan. Not that you need biodynamic wine to enjoy a glass of vino after a tough week. And if you're more of a beer person, opt for Guinness, Budweiser, Miller Lite, or Heineken. Or for the hipsters, Pabst, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. Sorry, hipsters. And what about that bar on the corner where you and your friends have beers after work? Or the cute little restaurant where you go specifically because of its bottomless Sunday brunch mimosas? How do you know if they're vegan? 
it might be overwhelming to think that in addition to changing your food, you now need to pay attention to things like finding agents in wine, too. Here's the thing. Don't. Don't pay attention to it. At least not for now. As we've said before, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, especially in your early days of living on the plant side. Many vegans, new and seasoned alike, make sure that any wine or beer bottles they buy for home are cruelty-free, but they take a somewhat more liberal approach when they are, say, at that bar. In other words, when out and about, they don't check to see whether the alcohol at the pub involved animal-derived filtering agents or production methods. That might be a route you choose, too. Some vegans also take on the added responsibility of feeling that they should present their new lifestyle as low-maintenance to make their friends see it as accessible and not limiting. Not nitpicking all the time has that added value, too. We can scour labels for hidden animal products all we want when we're at the grocery store, but perhaps the pub isn't the best place to aim for perfection. Do what you can and drink what you want. Responsibly, which also means taking a lift home. Okay, so like I said, this has come up so many times for me recently, including a friend who came to a recent little party I had, a backyard party, and was like, texted me and was like, I just realized that the only thing I have to bring is wine, but like it's really, really hard to find vegan wine. So should I bring my wine or should I show up empty handed? And I was like, just bring the wine. It's fine. And I happened to look and it was vegan wine. So it's funny to me how this topic is such a thing for so many people. And I will say that, I mean, I wrote that, so you probably know where I stand on it. I do make sure that all wine and beer that I have at home are totally vegan. I use Barnivore all the time. Well, not all the time. I'm not a lush, usually. But when I'm out and about, I I don't ask. You know, if I happen to know, then that's even better. But that's where I draw the line. And I have a little sidebar on this chapter, which is called Stop Whining. (laughs) I like that. Vegans can have their wine and hangover, too. In addition to the plethora of cruelty-free beers and wines you'll find at barnivore.com, not to mention at your local liquor store, here are some compassionate companies that sell their vegan wine online, and we'll drink to that. China Bend Winery, Cooper's Hawk Vineyards, Fitzpatrick Winery, Palmina Wines, Caraciabella, which I happen to absolutely love, Smithfield Wine, Thumbprint Cellars, The Vegan Vine Wines, which is also fantastic, Vinavanti Wines, and Wright's Wines, which honestly, there's so many more than that. So it's Thanksgiving season. Some of you are not going to be going to fully vegan uh, Thanksgiving meals. If you want to process that, let me know, because I may. I can support you in some capacity, like through the ether or energetically, or if you're a flock member on a one-on-one. But bring your vegan wine because you might need it. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end-of-year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar up to $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 for the year end. This is the time where we do the vast majority of fundraising for our entire year. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. 
you'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private Flock Facebook group, which will soon be upgraded into a brand new platform, and an invitation to our monthly Flock Friday Zoom meetings for fun and engaging conversations with me, Marianne, and others in the Flock. You will also have an opportunity to meet with me for one-on-one sessions to discuss your veganism, your activism, or whatever's on your mind. Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I will send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. And brand new this year, if you donate $250 or more, you will get that plus a really cool Our Hen House pin. So if you appreciate Our Hen House, if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st, and your donation will be tripled. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org donate. That's ourhenhouse.org donate. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also like us on Facebook, where you can also leave us a review, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.